Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 3. It is April 8th, 2008. Leave it to the Amish episode to cause technical difficulties, but we did have a rough patch over the weekend of getting this together both technical and time constraints, but I'm happy to say the episode's all set and ready to roll out for you this week. Before we dive into the preview, got a little business to take care of here first. want to congratulate the dual winners of our BOA Forum WrestleMania 24 Predictions Contest. The prize was a shout-out here at the beginning of BOA Audio. So, congratulations to our WrestleMania 24 Pick'em Champions Co-champions, it was a tie. They are Richard from Wales, our BOA UK correspondent, and Clan Denon. Those are the two folks from the forum who won the contest. To be the man, you have to beat the man, as the Nature Boy Ric Flair says. So congratulations to Richard from Wales and Clan Denon. They are the champions of the WrestleMania Pick'em Contest. <laughs> Might as well throw a little plug in here for the forum that I'm talking about. It is the official BOA forum. You can find it via BOA, click the forum button, or go to theusofe.com, T-A-G-U-S-O-F-E.com. Lots and lots of esoteric discussion and lots of discussion on other stuff going on in the world. Check out the US of E, register, it's free. Let us know what you think of the program and hang out with us. All right, now we got the business out of the way. It's time to talk about this week's episode of BOA Audio. It is definitely a unique edition of the program because we are going way off the beaten path of esoterica. We're going to explore the Amish culture with our guest Tom Shackman, author of Rumspringa, To Be or Not to Be Amish. We're going to be talking about Shackman's in-depth research into the Amish and their rite of passage known as Rumspringa, what it is, what are the rules of it? How does it serve to strengthen the Amish community? We're going to talk about the Amish in general, their unique educational system, their use of banning as a means of discipline, how farming by the Amish is diminishing, causing them to mix more with the mainstream people that they are so different from, how they feel about the tourism that exploits their enclaves, and tons and tons more. It's a really rare glimpse into the mysterious Amish world that exists within America's borders. We are going to hang our yoke on the Amish here this week and really find out what they're all about and what Rumspringa is all about. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Tom Shackman, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Tom Shackman has written 30 books and many television documentaries. He holds a BS in experimental psychology, an MFA in theater, and taught writing at New York University and at Harvard University Extension. He has also lectured at more than a dozen other colleges and universities around the country on various historical, social, and economic subjects. A former executive at the National Geographic Society, he has been a consultant to the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation and to the New York Zoological Society. He is a long-term member of the Authors Guild, the Writers Guild of America, and is a former president of the Board of the Writers' Room in New York City, an urban writers' colony. He is currently a trustee of the Connecticut Council on the Humanities, and a director of the newly formed Upper Housatonic Valley National Heritage Area. You can find out so much more about Tom Shackman at his website, www.tomshackman.com, T-O-M-S-H-A-C-H-T-M-A-N.com. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on April 4th, 2008. Tom Shackman, talking about Rumspringa, to be or not to be Amish on BOA Audio Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio Season 3. we got a very different sort of topic we're going to be covering here this week, but something that I've always been fascinated in and have really become even more interested in in the last few years as this rite of passage for the Amish community has broken into the mainstream. Our guest is Tom Shackman. He's the author of Rumspringa, To Be or Not to Be Amish. And it is an outstanding book. I just finished it this week. It is tremendous. Not only gives a real look at the Rumspringa process in the Amish community and some of the young people that are going through Rumspringa, but also just does a great job of uh, looking at the Amish religion 
and the Amish community and what it's all about, because so many people have really only a really vague, stereotypical understanding of the Amish community, and this book really sets the record straight on a lot of stuff. So I enjoyed it a tremendous amount. I wanted to bring Tom here on the show to talk about the book, Rumspringa, To Be or Not to Be Amish. So, Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show, and welcome to Banal of America Audio. Glad to be here. Well, let's start out with, you know, your bio, your background. Who is Tom Shackman, and, uh, you know, how did you become an author and, and end up looking into the Amish? Well, what I always tell people about being a writer is it's a disease that you catch early, and sometimes you can't get rid of it. I've done almost 30 books on various subjects, ranging from uh, tribes in Africa to uh, research on low temperatures. Uh, it was the basis of a two-hour NOVA program in the recent months. So uh, I try to write about things that interest me, and the Amish certainly do. You know, they're sort of way out, extreme versions of, of ourselves. I mean, most people in the U.S. are wasps uh, or, or something like that, and they are too. And, you know, they're white, and they've been here for some generations, and um, they're good Americans and all that kind of stuff. But yet they're very, very different from us. Yeah. And then I guess let's let's sort of do the, the basics, if you will. Uh, you know, who are the Amish? How do the communities spring up here in America and that kind of stuff? Well, the Amish are a, are a Protestant sect. Uh, they grew up at approximately the time of the Great Reformation and in Europe, and uh, they, they were sort of more hard-ass than anybody else, more doctrinaire, more rigid, um, more insular, if you will, and they have a, a very uh, strict uh, sense of what the Bible says and, and how people should live according to that. And so they were, they were persecuted in Europe, and all of a sudden brings up this new uh, colony across the seas, and Pennsylvania says, uh, why don't you come on over here? Because uh, we've got religious tolerance, we've got plenty of land. You can get out here, you can do you do whatever you darn please, and nobody's going to bother you. And they said, you know, this sounds pretty good after a couple of centuries of, of persecution. So they came over, and uh, by by the time that you know, let's say around 1750, the last of them were all over here. So they're here. Oh wow! And now they're not anywhere else, and they remain somewhat intact. Um, all through the years. Uh, uh, for example, the Revolutionary War was a big problem for them because they're pacifists. Uh, you know, so I mean, we've, they've, they've gone through all of these things. And their numbers stayed relatively small, five, ten thousand, up until about um, the turn of the 20th century. And then it started to accelerate. And now we're up to about maybe a quarter of a million. Oh, wow. Now, why do you think the numbers accelerated so much around the turn of the oh, century like that? Well, that? well, it just began to, but I mean, Look, increases in, in uh, the ability to uh, bring children past childhood diseases is, is one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a tremendously fertile uh, way of life. I mean, they, uh, their average number of children is six or seven, somewhere around that. And then they have what, what we call a, a very high retention rate, which is the, the ability of the sect to retain its junior members to become senior members over the years. In other words, People very seldom leave the sect. Yeah. A certain amount do, a uh, certain percentage, I should say, probably, uh, do, but by the vast number of them, uh, over 80%, uh, stay with the sect. And so when you combine this, this high fertility rate with the high retention rate, you really get, get a sort of a, a mathematical upcurve that, uh, that nobody can an equal, not even, you know, uh, third world countries. This is, this is, one of the greatest growth rates on the planet. Exactly, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Piggybacking onto your point here about the retention rate, that sort of ties in, obviously, to what the book is about, which is Rumspringa. And I'll sort of give a little thumbnail on Rumspringa. When, a, when an Amish teen turns 16, then they're free, they're not baptized yet. Well, I think that's the real point that you need to make. Yeah. Because the, the Amish are, are an Anabaptist sect. And Anabaptists are people who do not believe in, in infant baptism. They believe that you have to be a sort of a consenting adult. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but somewhat knowledgeable one and somebody who has some experience of the world in order to make an adult decision to be baptized and to go into this, this uh, rather rigorous sect. So up until the age of 16, the, the, uh, the kids are not considered uh, members of the, of the uh, sect. They're, they're part of the community, obviously, because they live in, in homes with, with their parents who are members of the sect. 
but at 16, it's sort of like the gloves come off, you know. Okay, well, now you're adults, and now you can do whatever you want. And from that time onward, until you decide to come into the community, to decide to be baptized, you're on your own, religiously speaking, and as well as some other ways. And uh, since most of them have been raised in a very, very strict environment, uh, this, this sort of sudden freedom at the age of 16, just, just like the scales fall from their eyes, and then, you know, now they can do everything. They can go out, they can get a car, they can, they can do all the things that, that, that they were forbidden to do. And as we all know, the things that we're forbidden to do are the things that we like the most. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's like, wow, all of a sudden uh, I've got this tremendous cornucopia of the real world to play with if I want to. And then if I don't want to play with it anymore, if it scares me, or if I feel I can't hack it, you know, then I can say, okay, well, I'm ready to be baptized, and I'll go back into the church, and I'll have a certain amount of protection because the community kind of cares for its own in, in many different uh, ways, and among them is, is, you know, finding ways to get people jobs and keep a roof over their heads and that kind of stuff. And let's just touch on one more sort of uh, Amish basic, if you will, and that's the ordnung. Before we really dig into all the various uh, side tangibles of the thing, so people can kind of understand what the ordnung is, I was surprised that uh, it changes really from community to community. It's not, I thought it was going to be some set thing that came down from, like, you know, a head national Amish office or something. But right, there is not. Uh, the Amish are organized by local communities. Uh, the highest officer, if you would, it's actually a religious officer, is a bishop. But there is no synod of bishops, uh, you know, that goes throughout the country. There's no pope. There's no, you know, religious hierarchy. Matter of fact, hierarchy is, is a word that most of the Amish don't like because they don't think it applies to them at all. Um, and because, and it all because it feels like something of, of well, the Catholic Church, which is what they are distant from. The Catholic Church starts with the Pope and it goes to the Cardinals and then so on and so forth. And there's tremendous lines of authority and, and, it, and it looks like a pyramid. And there's, the, the Amish structure is, is much flatter than that. Uh, inside each community, uh, the, the, the religious leaders do hold sway, but uh, the community itself is relatively small. It has to be because you've got to travel to the church by a horse and buggy. So that means you can't come from 50 miles away or a 1,000 miles away. You've got to be right there. And so that's what limits the size of, of the community's uh, in, in geographical scope. Numerical is uh, how many people can fit into this house for church service. Yeah. So both of those things are fairly limiting in scope. So um, the ordinance, which is, is kind of an unwritten list of do's and don'ts, mostly don'ts, they liken it to a picket fence, you know, it's around a house. It both keeps out and keeps in. It's not so terrible. It can be broached uh, and all of that. But if you do breach it, um, there are some consequences for it. And um, we all live within boundaries within certain rules, whether the rules are the government's rules or your parents' rules or your own internal rules that you set up because you have a moral compass and you decide what's right and what's wrong. We all have, we all have things like that. The Amish have them in spades, and they have them uh, in the form of these kind of laws. Uh, they're unwritten laws. They're not, not put down, but everybody understands what they are. Now, that's what becoming a member of the adult community means. You get to understand fully what the what the ordinance of your particular area is. Now that varies. I mean, in some places you're allowed to ride bicycles. In other places you're not allowed to ride a bicycle. Some places you might be able to get a motor on your on your lawnmower. In other places you you got to do it by hand. So I mean, these these things vary, but they vary in small degrees. Yeah. Uh, in general, uh, no old order Amish community allows people to to have automobiles, except the kids when they're in Rome Springer. Then they said, well, we really don't have any control over you, so if you can somehow flummox your way into uh, uh, getting a driver's license and, and, and buying a car um, you know, under whatever state rules there are, then, you know, we can't do anything about it. But please don't park it in front of the house where all of our neighbors can see it, you know, because it's an embarrassment to us. Put it around back near the barn, you know, where nobody's going to see it. Yeah, yeah. It seems like cars is the big one of the big things. Probably well, one if of the you've, big been, you've been moving all your life at five miles an hour, 
And all of a sudden, you get the possibility of moving at 55 miles an hour. I mean, this is really quite something. Exactly. Um, and, of course, uh, also just talk about the, the, the no electricity rule, because that's the one everyone seems to hang on with the Amish. Well, it, 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 it really has to do with, with uh, no electricity from the national grid uh, or, or even local area grid. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a biblical phrase about the Amish that they shouldn't yoke themselves to unbelievers. And this is this is something that comes out of that phrase. In other words, that they, they need to be uh, independent in the sense of continuing their uh, community of belief, and that should, that should satisfy all their needs. They shouldn't need to take anything from the larger society. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to be isolated or live behind walls, and that in general they don't live behind walls. Uh, but it does mean that they shouldn't share in a lot of this other stuff. Now, some of this is really problematic for me because they certainly uh, share in, in the sense of, uh, of uh, being on public roads. You know, they share in the sense of being subject to taxation. Yeah. And so on. So the, the electric grid is, is sort of a, a two-sided thing here. I, uh, part of it is to maintain simplicity. Um, the whole idea of an Amish life is to, to pare it down to its, its essentials. It can be comfortable, but it can't be ostentatious. Uh, the worst sin in the Amish canon is pride. You, you shouldn't take pride in it because everything is originated by God. So therefore, it's not something you did, it's something that God has done, or God has allowed you to do. So taking pride in something, you know, like the, uh, the buttons on my... Uh, Levi's are shinier than the buttons on your Levi's. They can't have that kind of stuff. Exactly, yeah. It's a very interesting thing, go back to my main point, which is how these people are a mirror for us. You know, what does that say about us? What kinds of pride do we take and what kind of thing? Uh, it, make, it kind of makes you stop for a little while and look again and say, well, you know, am I being too egotistical? I mean, do I have too much bling? I mean, what, what's going on here? Uh, how do I live my life? And I think that's what's good for us uh, in looking at the Amish, not to see how these curious people live. But what are the implications for ourselves? It does make you think a lot about what's going on in the real world outside of the Amish community. Now let's talk a little bit about your research into the Amish. It sounds like you spent quite a bit of time with some of these kids and stuff going through Rome Springer, right? I did spend some time with them. Now, now uh, there are a couple of hundred hours of interviews in the book, uh, that are based on interviews that were done for a, a film uh, that came out earlier called Devil's Playground. And uh, what I did was, it's so difficult to get into the Amish community to any depth that I found that this was a tremendous uh, cache of material, only a small portion of which had been used for the documentary. And there were, as I say, hundreds of hours of things that contained a lot of interesting stuff. And so I, I used that as and I built on that, and I talked to more kids, and I talked to their parents and their educators, and people who look at the Amish, and did a lot of reading and, and going and visiting and hanging out and things like that. And um, it was a tremendous experience for me. I really enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I don't say it was easy, but uh, it, was, it was a good thing to do. And I'm the, I'm the beneficiary of it. Definitely. It sounds like it was pretty interesting and uh, a once-in-a-lifetime type experience, especially because you say how hard it is really to break into the community. They were pretty – did it take a while for them to open up to you, or was it sort of like – Well, I, I usually went in places where I had some sort of introduction, so either introduction from other kids or introduction from uh, other interested adults in, in adjoining communities and who said, you know, this guy's okay, uh, he's not going to hurt you, and, and uh, he's interested in what you have to say. And, Partly in, in talking to uh, to the kids and, and certainly to their parents, uh, we're talking about you know how do you grow up? You know what? How, do, how does one do that? What's important to you? And uh, one of the wonderful things I think about the Amish kids is that they think about things that the rest of us sort of take for granted. You know, how do we grow up? What is what is it we want to be? Uh, what is our faith? Uh, what is our faith mandate that we do or don't do? What is it that I need? For life, what do I don't need for life? Now, I spoke to one woman who'd been out in the world for about three or four years, and uh, she was about to get married. And and uh, she's saying, "This is marvelous. I won't have any car bills. I won't have any insurance bills. I won't have any electric bills. I won't have any 
you know, you're saying all of the things that she'd been paying when she was out on the outside that you will now not have to do. You have a tremendous uh, support system. I think most of us, when we're 16, 18, 20 years old, don't think about our support system, but uh, uh, it's re it becomes really important. We think of each other as our support system, our, our age cohort, and so on. When you get out into the world, I mean, what is your support system? Do you have a union that you belong to? Do you have a, a group of people that uh, uh, that you go out with in the evening and they offer to support one another and, uh, in various ways? Uh, you know, what is it? We None of us exist in this world alone. Uh, we all have some sort of alliances somewhere, and you know, major alliances with with your partner, whoever that might be. Uh, but beyond that, there's there's lots of support things, and one of the things that the Amish community does best is to support their own. Yeah. And uh, this means taking care of you in sickness and in health. Uh, you know, you're you're not going to have to uh, worry about that if you. If you, your child comes up with a, with a terrible disease, that you know there are ways that, that the community has of supporting. Did you notice any sort of like overarching trends as far as when you were talking to the kids? Like uh, it seemed to come across that they were really worried about going to hell in general. I well, was... I think they've been brought up for 16 years by saying if you don't do it our way, you're going to hell. Yeah, and uh, uh, you can't actually get an Amish adult to say yes. That's what we've taught them. Because they say, oh, no, no, we're very much live and let live uh, kind of people. And in some ways they are, but in other ways they're not. Most of the kids that go out in Rumspringer who decide that they're not going to go back have to figure out a way to deal with, with their religious uh, questions. Uh, one of the interesting things that happens to a lot of them is that they go out and they, and they go church hopping, you know, from from uh, various uh, service to service. I mean, one of the things they're not allowed to do in, inside the Amish community is, is to uh, is to really study the Bible in the sense of, of questioning it or thinking about it or saying, you know, what does this phrase mean and what do you think it means? The sort of idea of interpreting the Bible is, is, is a no-no within the Amish community. There's only one interpretation, which is the one that's promulgated uh, there. But you go outside, you know, and you go to the local Baptist church and you have a Wednesday evening Bible study course. This is marvelous for some of these kids. Yeah. I had a one an interesting sort of discussion with one, one Amish elder who was worrying about these kids. And I said, listen, the apples are not falling far from the tree. Uh, when they go out, and even when they stay out, they generally become Baptist Protestants who are, theologically speaking, not very far from what it is that, that your that, uh, holds dear. Uh, in fact, you might be hard-pressed to say exactly what the differences are. There are some differences in how you express yourself in lifestyle and whether a Christian lifestyle allows you to uh, to have a car and to have a TV set or whether it doesn't. But you know, I would say, theologically speaking, there are only minor differences. So it's not as if the, the kids come out and they decide, oh, well, we're going to be a Tibetan Buddhist. Yeah. You know, they're not doing that. That isn't, what, that isn't who they are. They are very faithful and full of faith uh, for the most part. Um, you, do, you don't grow up um, eating as being a really doubting Thomas. It's very, very tough to do that. You may come up with these questions. You may decide eventually that, that you're not a deist, that you don't believe in these things at all. But it, it's a long and a hard journey. It seems like uh, one of the other things you sort of talk about in the book, it's probably not the majority, but it seems like there is definitely an enclave of tremendous uh, excessive like alcohol and drug use that goes on during the Rum Springer, like you said, because they're finally... Well, it's, it's, you know, like the cap has been released from the bottle. I mean, yeah. all of a sudden, you, you've got this thing. I mean, first of all, uh, one of the great things about the Amish is how hard they work. You know, they don't punch clock, or if they do, you know, a 40-hour week doesn't mean anything to them. They're probably working 70 hours. Because they're working before they get to work, they're working after they get to work, they get... You know, they, they eventually fall asleep out of exhaustion more than anything else. So, you know, people who work that hard can also party pretty hard, too, especially if they've never known it before. Mm -hmm. When I have three or four kids say to me, well, you know, I'd never drunk any alcohol before, so when I started on this, I had no idea what was going on. And, and all of the other kids insisted on keeping giving me stuff, and I got really, really plowed. You know, and I didn't know what happened for two days or something. But, uh, and, and that's because they have no experience with it whatsoever. I mean, we all, as we grow up, we have a tremendous amount of experience 
with the rest of the world. Um, we take it in through television, we take it in through the internet, we take it in through movies, through just, just being out and seeing things and doing things, talking to people who are not exactly like us. Yeah. And it just comes in and it accumulates. And by the time we're 16, 18, you know, and we're sort of going out on our own, more or less, uh, we have a lot of background against which to test what we see and what we feel and what we hear. And the Amish kids have much, much less of that. So it's all very shocking to them, very new, and tend to lead to excess because they don't know how to do it gradually. And would you say that's, that's uh, like, pretty new to the Rumspringa trend and, and that maybe uh, back in the, you know, 60s? Well, the Rumspringa trend started off uh, as a way for the uh, young adult to meet others of the opposite sex and have a courtship period. And indeed, most of the kids that come back into the Amish set do so because they've been out, they've found a partner, and they said, oh, thank goodness, I found somebody, this is somebody I love, and they love me, and the two of us, you know, we'll be a much better team um, going into this tough environment than uh, I would going in just by myself. Yeah. So... That's a perfectly reasonable thing to have happen. Uh, it's a good thing. Uh, you know, I mean, I suppose one can call it a mating ritual, but uh, uh, certainly a courtship one. There's an aspect of courtship, and that, that had been the main function of these things. Now, it, as, as it came on in certain areas, it, it got a little wilder and wilder. I can't tell you the number of people in their 30s and 40s that I talked to who said, yeah, I did that, and now I don't do that anymore. And it's very difficult for me to watch my son or my daughter go through it. But they said, well, Dad, you did it, you know, and or Mom, you did it, you know, now I can do it. Yeah. And we have a hard time saying, yeah, well, don't do as I do, do as I say. <laughs> you know, we hear that from our parents forever, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's the same sort of thing here. But they will say, listen, go ahead, or you're going to do this, but be careful, and uh, you're going to have to make some decisions down the line here, the most important one being whether or not you want to be Amish. If you don't want to be Amish, you'll still be our son and our daughter, and we'll still treat you, but you're not going to get into the inner circle and stay in the inner circle the way uh, that people who have decided to be baptized are going to do. Yeah. So you are going to be sort of cut off a bit, and this is far from pleasant. We like to, as young adults, we like to think that, well, we're going to, we're going to put the distance between ourselves and our parents. We're, we're going to do that. We're going to be in charge. And uh, even though my father wants me to come for dinner every Friday night, even though I might actually end up there every Friday night, I'm not going to commit to doing that because I want it to be my choice. And the Amish are saying, well, no, not not exactly. Uh, you can't come to see church services to us on Sunday just because you happen to be around. You're either in or you're out. So if you're, if you're out, well, fine, that's fine. Well, you know, you're still our son and our daughter, and we'll have uh, interchanges with you, but uh, not as close as, those, as your sister or your brother or your cousin who's, who's uh, our neighbor here and inside and wearing the same funny clothes and, and all the rest of that. Would you say, based on your interviews and stuff, uh, is there much of a difference in how the men versus the women uh, experience and utilize the Rumspringer period for the coming of age? Well, the men are sort of saying, well, we can do anything. And the women are saying, well, we're in charge of you whether you're going to have sex or not. <laughs> I mean, it's just as straightforward as that. You know, I'm the one, the female says, I'm the one that's going to get pregnant if there's a problem. And uh, we're not going to have an abortion, so it's really my problem. So I will decide, you know, whether or not we're going to go all the way or not. And so that aspect of it is more in charge of females. The men are the ones usually that, that buy the car. Very seldom do you get a young woman who's out there is able to buy a car or, or does so, even though some of them have dreams of cars. Uh, so those are two of, the, two of the major differences. I mean, you know, everybody drinks just as much as everybody else, or doesn't drink. Uh, I think probably men do more drugs, uh, I think that's true in the regular society as well. You know, but it's like that. It's an experimentation period. This is what they're out there for. I mean, to get a little experience in the world. And uh, what I think of it is, 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 is a sort of an inoculation period. Mm -hmm. Now, simply 
because you have to you have to pay attention to what the facts are. If the facts are that over 80% of these kids go back into the sex, then that's what the Rome Springer period serves as. You know, it's sort of an inoculation of, of experience in the world so they can go. I mean, they ought to have a sign that they should put up over their, their hearth that says, been there, done that. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, they really haven't. You know, I mean, they've done a few things. Uh, but, you know, they haven't uh, gone and sat on a mountaintop in Tibet, and they haven't uh, taken an art class in downtown Philadelphia, um, you know, and, and they haven't uh, spent their spring break, uh, you know, uh, nude scuba diving somewhere. I mean, they haven't done things. There's lots of stuff they haven't done, especially intellectual, and artistic, and creative stuff uh, that they haven't done. What they've done is a sort of normal kind of uh, consumer thing. You know, maybe they opened a porn magazine. Maybe maybe they you know, went to a rock concert. That kind of stuff. But it's just kind of normal, everyday, low-level experience thing. But it, it helps them say, okay, well, I've, I've done that, you know. I don't need to listen to rock music because I've already listened to it or something like that. You know, I, you know and I, I, I borrowed my friend's car and we, we got it up to 90 on, on, uh, on the freeway and uh, that was a thrill and then a little tough for me to keep control over it at that point. So, you know, now I'm okay with uh, it takes half a day for me to go into town and buy a bag of groceries. I'm not sad about not wrestling. You shouldn't be sad about the fact that you're not going to see me out here. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. You should rejoice in the fact that I have had the greatest wrestling career seems like, uh, from what I can gather in the book from, from the kids and stuff, with it, that after a while, the novelty of all these things, since they were never even brought up with it in the first place, it's not really hard to give up, and the novelty kind of wears off after a while, too. That's one thing. The other thing is they know they can hack it within the community. So they've been brought up that way. They know, what, they know what it takes. It's not as if you or I were to go into the community and we're saying, oh, my God, you know, I'm, I'm on email withdrawal. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I can't do this. What am I going to do without my fix of, of audio cast or, or, or things like that? And, you know, and I'm going to miss CSI and I'm going to do it. Yeah, you know, I couldn't all, give up all, the Red all Sox. Those, all those things. Right. You know, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I really like this, this, this single moth uh, stocks here and I'm not going to make enough money to afford it. Okay. But the honest kids are saying, well, you know, we know how to do this. We've done it all our lives. Um, this is, is very congruent with our inner selves, who we are, who we think of ourselves. There's a, there's a basic difference in the way that we're brought up on the outside and they're brought up on the inside. It shows up in the schools. First of all, the Amish don't want the kids going to school past the eighth grade because if they do, they might get, you know, ideas that are contrary to the ones that are being promulgated within the sect. And that might give them, in turn, you know, notions of, of that there is a reasonable, good, interesting life outside the Amish sect. We don't want them to have that. But beyond that, the purpose of the education is different. You grow up in an American school system, public school system, or even a private school system, other than a deeply religious one. Um, the idea is to become an interesting individual, able to support yourself, and you go out and, you, and uh, you be all you can be. The idea in an Amish school is not that. The idea in an Amish school is, how am I going to serve the community? How am I going to integrate within that community? And how is the community of fellow believing souls going to advance towards a greater life in heaven? That's a very, very different way of growing up. Yeah. So you, don't, you don't think I'm going to be an Einstein or I'm going to be a, a Mick Jagger or, or anything like that. You don't have those goals. And not having them is a perfectly good reason for going back into the set and saying, okay, I'm going to be a terrific community member. Yeah. By the way, it doesn't keep everybody down in all ways. I mean, you know, I, I personally know three Amish millionaires, for example, and there are plenty more that I don't know. Um, and, and, you know, their, their talent would have been recognized for making money anywhere, whatever they touched. 
and I know a, a very fine Amish artist. There, there are very few of those because it's kind of difficult to do within, within the confines of the thing. But most of the people who want to be artists, or who want to be rock stars, or who want to be whatever, who want to go to medical school, who want to open a pharmacy, who want to uh, open an accounting business, uh, or be a lawyer, or, or be anything that, that uh, requires a certain amount of, of higher education and expertise, are not able to stay within the sect. How long can somebody wait when they're in the Rome Springer before they become baptized? Like somebody... well, there's, there's no finite limit on it. I mean, but there, there gets to be a realistic limit. You get to be about in your mid-twenties and your parents are saying, you know, crap, we get off the pot, would yeah. you please? You know, uh, we, like, we like having you around, but in fact, you haven't found a mate. You haven't found a this or this. So why don't you just get yourself baptized? You know, you're, you're around here anyway. You want to be here. If you don't want to be here, then you're gone. We know. But as long as you're sort of hanging around, you know, and, and here you are 25 and you're hitting on girls who are 16, you know, find one or, or uh, just get yourself baptized in, anyway, and then so you'll bring this other person back in. And uh, you kind of already touched on it, but it sounds like when somebody's not baptized, they're not like, uh, they're not shunned in the classic sense of, of the Amish way, right? right? The, the shunning is, is uh, something where most Outsiders think, oh, if you haven't become Amish, that, that they shun you, which is not the case. The shunning is relegated to those people who have decided to be baptized and then decided that they want to leave the sect. Then they're shunned. And you can't eat at the table with them, you can't have any interaction with them. Now, this becomes hugely problematic for kids, and sometimes even uh, you find that, that uh, a husband or a wife decided to leave the sect and the other one that doesn't want to it becomes hugely difficult. Uh, I know one case of uh, something where, where the man was thrown out because uh, he put in a telephone for his business, this was many years ago, mm -hmm. and his wife, who did not want to leave the sect, uh, was forced to leave with him because, you know, that's uh, who she had agreed to spend her life with. She wasn't going to separate from them. Certainly, there's no divorce in, in, in Amistad. And so she very reluctantly uh, left the fact in it and had regretted it ever since. Uh, but not that she had a choice in the matter, but that it, it was, was, was painful for her. In uh, referencing that story, one thing I found interesting about that story that you tell in the book uh, that you're talking about right now is that uh, then somewhere down the line they changed the rules and made it okay to have a phone, but still didn't unban the people. That's right, yeah. Kind of hard to undo the undamning. And I thought it was kind of interesting, too. Uh, it's only sort of alluded to in the book is that just the high level of gossip, it seems, in the community and sort of like people watching each other and making sure that they're following the rules. It sounds very like, I well, think that would is, drive me nuts. This is real busybody stuff, you know. I mean, uh, part of the way, you know, listen, if I have to undergo all this stuff, I have to wear the depends on my in my dress in a particular order, you better be darn sure that if I see your pins out of order, I'm going to I'm going to say something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, it's part of the of the way that you internalize rules in your community, whatever that whatever that is, and uh, express how you believe other people ought to ought to be living. And it really, the, the banning sounded like it had a tremendous effect on uh, one of the girls' profile in the book. Says she, she was she was so isolated and everything that she ended up uh, trying to commit suicide or something. So I mean, this is serious business. This is serious business. It's very very emotional, and uh, it's almost hard for us as outsiders to, because we don't have an analogous thing that happens to us, uh, to imagine what it means to be shunned uh, by by people who are your family, your only family who've been your friend all your life. You know, how can they turn their back on you? Well, the rules require them to turn their back on you. They don't do it because they, they, they feel like it. They do it because they're required to do that, and it may hurt them too. Uh, this, is, this is the toughest thing. But the, the honest elders will say to you, look, we don't do this easily. Uh, we usually give people three and four chances, and uh, we do it because it's necessary to the health of the sect. Once we start loosening the rules, then we're going to lose our, our identity as a people. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're going to uh, intermarry with others uh, who are not like us, and slowly we'll lose the, the essence of our religiosity. 
in our special list. We don't want to do that. Yeah, that's the sort of thing's not allowed, right? I couldn't go find an Amish girl and marry her. You you could, but she'd have to leave the sack. Oh. I mean, you know, this this is what what happened. To what the American Jews have have said? Okay, well, you know, it's okay if you marry this this young lady who's not quite as religious as you are, and then the next generation uh, marries somebody who's completely outside the Jewish faith, and all of a sudden. That family is is gone from the world. Uh, it may take two or three generations, but it but it, it happens. Yeah. And the Amish don't want to allow that to happen, and they have these rules to prevent it from happening. If you want to go, fine. You can go out and go. <laughs> we'll survive because the the other six of of your brothers and sisters are all going to stay here. <laughs> yeah. You know, so you'll be out there and you'll be on your own, and we'll still love you, but we won't love you in the same way. And you can love us and all of that, and um, but it. You're really going to have to find another support system. So that people who go out are, in a certain sense, very, very courageous because it's tough to exist outside by yourself. Yeah. And after all, when they're going out, they're going out with a very different set of strengths than uh, those of us in the mainstream have. First of all, in economic terms, they've got no training. They've left school at age 14 or 15. Uh, they've got no experience in stuff where the big bucks are usually paid. They've got no capital, and they don't even know what's out there. Yeah. So these are three very big problems for them. No education, no capital, and no sense of what the resources are. And then the fourth one is there's, is there's no support system. You know, I mean, they, they don't even know uh, uh, who's in the next locker at the YMCA who might be of help to them. They don't do networking, and certainly not outside the set. Yeah because they don't use tools that would allow them to do this. They don't join clubs. You know, they, you know who's on the ball team with them. You know, those sorts of things. The way we all find out what's available, what's there. Uh, you know, here's an interesting young lady you might want to go out with. And listen, there's a job in your field in San Francisco. They don't have these, these sorts of incoming ideas. For an Amish kid, to leave the sect is really an act of courage. Yeah, it sounds like it. It would be pretty tough to do that sort of thing, especially they're really uh, handicapped going into the world like that. And you kind of already touched on them, so you think those are the, sort of the big reasons why these kids end up going back to the Amish, the 80%? Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of non-negative. In other words, I don't, I don't want to fail outside. I don't want to uh, have a job that uh, is going to be awful. I don't want to lose my family. And there's not a heck of a lot pulling them outside except things that, that we, we sometimes take for granted, you know, satisfying our curiosity about life, intellectually, emotionally, just in terms of, of sensual experience. They don't have those yearnings because they, they don't have experience to other people's tales of what those experiences might be. Yeah. You know, they're not going to read something about the South Seas and say, Oh, I really wish I could see what Tahiti looks like. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to take my surfboard out there and see what I can do there. You know, they don't have a surfboard. They don't have, and they haven't watched a movie about other people having surfboards. So these are sort of dreams are, are circumscribed. Yeah. They have some, some vaguely materialistic dreams, but they're, they're not big deal things. I mean, nobody goes out there and says, I've got a million dollar idea. You know, I'm going to start a, a company doing things on the Internet from my, my cousin's garage. I mean, this is not – how can you do that if you have no sense of what the Internet is? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You you, there are all sorts of things that are not out there and available, and, and this is concerning. So the idea that the, the kids do go out, they, they try to experience the world, and uh, it, it's sort of a real lesson for us. You know, how do we experience the world? What do we do? When we get loose, do we go out and get wrecked? I mean, or do we go out and, and get things that we have not been able to get otherwise? And one hopes that, that it's some more of the latter than the former. I mean, the college, uh, in addition to being a time to learning how to drink, is is, is also a place uh, to expand your mind and, and, and learn about things that you never thought you knew before. You never even knew or experienced it. I mean, one, one guy read the book and said, yeah, the rest of us have a rum spring. It's called college. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. Talking about sort of that mixing between the Amish and the English and how they really don't want that sort of thing going on, you do talk about in the book how the decline of farming in the Amish community is leading to that mixing between the Amish and the English because a lot of the Amish have to go and get jobs in regular mainstream places. Sure. I mean, there are just as many Amish farmers as there always were. 
but the, the, the percentage of the Amish who are involved in farming is lower and continuing to lower uh, simply because you, you, they can't simply uh, just add farms. However, they, they have in, in some senses because they're now in, in, I don't know, 26, 27 states, and a lot of them are in isolated, mostly farming communities. But within the established communities, you know, in Lancaster, uh, along Route 80 in, in Indiana, and uh, down near Worcester in, in, uh, in Ohio, where the big communities are, there's limited farmland. It's been cut up so many times for so many generations. So they've got to take other jobs. And, and uh, all these RV factories uh, out in Indiana, they love the Amish boy. They're great workers. They come on. Um, they don't get sick. They don't take holidays. And they don't uh, stop at the top. You know, to drop the hat when the, when the clock punch is done, uh, they'll do any job. You know, they're great employees. And they're there, and the Amish say, hey, this is marvelous, terrific money, 18, 20 bucks an hour. And bring it home, and it goes a lot further for us than it does with people who've got to pay uh, the car bills and the tuition bills and the insurance bills and all the rest of that. Yeah. So um, there, are, there are plenty of, of Amish now who have jobs that are, outside, what they call work away. Uh, they're not in the community when they work. They have maybe have something very little to do with the community. And so I don't think there's any Amish that own an RV. Yeah. Uh, so um, that's something that intercourse with the outside world. And they take from it what they need, which is, is, is the job and the, and the salary and, and all of that. They don't take the health insurance, by the way, unless they're forced to, uh, you know, by being under... By being, if they're not baptized in the sect, they are forced to take the health insurance. Uh, if they are, then they don't have to do that. So what, what happens is when you have people who are not totally involved in farming and ancillary industries, is you begin to have more interchange with the outside world and more desires. I mean, you've got the guy and you, you know, what has he got in his lunch pail? You know, it may be very different from yours. Uh, or, or what's he going to do with his... Uh, uh, when he cashes his paycheck on Friday night, you know, he's going to the movies, he's going bowling, he's going get in the car with, with a bunch of friends and, and, and uh, drive 200 miles to go to a rock concert. You know, these are things you may not ever have thought about doing. Yeah. But the guy who does the job next to you is doing them, and you know, there's, there's sort of a natural interchange there to find out about that kind of stuff. What I what I said eventually is that the Amish are going to become more like the uh, the Orthodox Jews in, in our cities, who have a very distinct religious uh, understanding of the world and way of interacting with it, uh, but it's all internal. Uh, and, and I mean, in addition to the, the garb that they wear and, and some of some of the, the things that they do, but that their internal religiosity does not depend on where they are. Yeah, the, the Amish certainly have a great affinity for that, that kind of, of uh, religiosity and intensity of, of personal experience with God. And, and uh, I think it's transferable and, and will go elsewhere. Uh, they feel very strongly that, that there's a strong link to the earth uh, that they need. And I can't disagree with that, but I, I, I just say in future generations it's not going to be available to everybody in this sector. Yeah. Uh, or it will be available in less, less measure. I mean, it's one thing to live on a, what they call a farmette, which is like you five acres or something where you've got a, a cow and, and a horse and maybe a few chickens and things like that. And then you can take care of that. Then living on a farm of 40 acres where you are actually involved in farming all the time. So it's a very different experience. What do these Amish communities feel about the English communities that, that surround them and they end up making so much money off of them and exploiting them and, you know, selling Amish? Materials and merchandise and, and that kind of bric-a-brac. There's some resentment, but on the other hand, um, it also brings them income as well. Uh, you know, the tourist industries, uh, they benefit them in terms of, of jobs and making items uh, for them and uh, serving them in, in restaurants and, and that kind of stuff too. So they, they can't have it both ways. If they want to be uh, isolated and they want to build a wall around themselves, they could do that. But they ha that has never been their way. Uh, they want to be uh, interpenetrated with the outside world uh, and maintain themselves 
individually uh, as different. They don't want to be insular. It's not a monastery. You know, there are no gates on their communities. Now, this is a very important thing. So, therefore, what we're really talking about is it's in the head, right? You know, they've got to have it inside and in their head. This is how they are. This is how they live. And, uh, you know, if, if, if somebody comes up and up to them and ask a dumb question, they'll give a straightforward answer. They may resent it a little bit, but they still understand it. And in a certain sense, they, they've always believed that they are modeled for uh, how man should exist in God's world. And that if people are looking at them, uh, they may look at them as curious and strange, but they're also seeing that there's a tremendous integrity to what it is that they are and how they do with things. And that is not wrong in, in Amish terms. Not a question of their taking pride in it. It's a question of they are obeying God's dictates as, as they see them, and therefore they are held up examples of how people ought to, ought to live. One of the interesting trends that you point out in the book that I had never even thought of or heard of was this uh, high number of genetic diseases that are occurring in the Amish culture just because of the small communities and sort of the interbreeding that goes on there because there's only so many people in, in these some of these communities. Right. Well, there are no diseases that are only Amish. Yeah. What, what you find is that these are diseases that, uh, that occur in, in all communities, but because the Amish have intermarried, there are more instances there. And if they communicate with one another, uh, they know they all know about it. And so some physicians who study these things uh, are able to get better samples simply because there are more people in one place. Yeah. And some of these diseases are very, very debilitating. But they'd be debilitating to anyone who had them. Uh, whether they're within the community or not. We just happen to know more about them with the Amish because they seem to, they seem to be in a cluster. And it's not a cluster that's, you know, produced by radiation or produced by, by, uh, a weird inter, intermatings or things like that. It's, it's, it's a normal occurrence. Okay, if it's a one in a million occurrence, fine, but you can find more of them in the Amish community because of the intermarriage. That's all. Yeah. It's a problem because, you know, uh, we can do genetic testing before we get married, and if there's a real problem, we may be able to identify it, and we may be able to decide whether this is a, either a deterrent to marriage or a deterrent to having children or, or if there's some, some other way to deal with it. The Amish are not going to do that. You know, they have a hard enough time finding a suitable mate. So they're, they're not, and they're not going to look into the future. They're saying, you know, whatever will be, will be that. That uh, whatever it is is God's will, and uh, we'll deal with it. Mm-hmm. It's not that they disdain modern medicine; they don't at all, and they've even allowed themselves to be vaccinated because they say, "Well, you know, God invented vaccines too." So it's not a question of of, of, of mankind doing something that's against God's will. Uh, but if if you come out with a child who has a severe uh, or, or who looks severely damaged because of the disease. And we're not going to throw that child away. We're not going to shut him or her up behind bars. We're going to devote our lives to taking care of them in the best way we can. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the book, you give a pretty good idea of what you think Rumspringer will be like in 50 years. So uh, talk about that and how you see this rite of passage evolving uh, as the generations go on. Well, first, first of all, Rumspringer is just something that uh, uh, we probably all go through in one way or another. We may not call it that. It's mm-hmm. sort of more identified by, by the Amish, uh, more specific uh, for them. Uh, I think that the Amish are going to have to evolve, as we were talking about before, because uh, uh, they're going to be less tied to the land. But uh, there's always going to be a rite of passage. Either you have children brought up, well, put children brought up inside a community. Uh, they've got to go out and get some of the outside. But as long as they believe in a, uh, the Anabaptist creed, which I don't see anybody uh, giving up, then then we're going to have something like this. Intellectually speaking, it's not a bad idea that uh, if you're going to join a religious uh, group, that you do so as as an adult. Yeah. Uh, That somebody makes an independent decision. So I think this is a very interesting thing, and that that, that portion of it will go on. Exactly what form a room stringer will take, uh, whether there will be any limits to it or something, I I have no idea. But it's a social practice. It's not part of the, the religious rights at all. I mean, 
different from place to place. The less uh, rural the place, the more the active the spring is. In the, in the newer Amish communities, the ones that are pretty far out, uh, you have people saying, oh, no, no, I'm not letting my kid go out and do that. But in the older communities, they do. And you did raise the point in the book that maybe in the future, Rumspringer will sort of take the form where these kids might end up going to college or doing something, you know. Yeah, I, I, I have argued to my friends in the Amish community that uh, that education is not as dangerous as they think it is. That they are certain kinds of education that, that they could allow uh, their children to have, which would, would benefit the community. I mean, they could use their own accountants. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about their own lawyers. That may be a little difficult. <laughs> well, because of the way that they're, uh, that they're aspected of how, how they how they interact with the world, which is, is, a, is a largely non-adversarial way, and we have an adversarial uh, legal system. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that's appropriate. But, you know, they have... Uh, they're always having to use uh, outside accountants uh, for their businesses, some of which are, are complicated. I mean, how about a dental hygienist or, uh, you know, some uh, certain forms of, of health care uh, personnel, uh, a midwife, for example. I mean, they, they, they have a great need for people uh, to perform those services within the communities, and there are outsiders who currently do that. And I, my argument to them is that, that, that this is a perfectly reasonable skill to bring back into the community, which means you must allow your children to to get this kind of experience. And that, it, that uh, you, your, shall we say, loss rate uh, won't go up appreciably if you do that. Yeah. And uh, I, I think when you when you when you as an outsider or I as an outsider try and deal with, with things like this, you. These are suggestions that have to be made, not only gently, but uh, within the context of, of what you understand their goals to be. Uh, they, they're coming to formulations like this themselves. It's, it's, I'm not the first person to have said this to them, nor am I the, uh, you, you know, and it's been said by insiders as well. When you talk to your friends like that, do they usually, what's their reaction usually, you know? Well, not, the... you know, you're like, I'm not telling you what to do. I mean, you know, yeah. they certainly quite understand that. I'm saying, well, you know, we we understand, even as, as outsiders, uh, I may have more experience being around Amish communities than, than than some of them do because they may not have moved very far or seen very many different ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't have the same experience because it's not an insider's view, it's an outsider's view. Knowing what I do know about specialized education scenarios it's, 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 and, and also what it is that they, the Amish want, from an education, it's not totally incompatible. So my my guess is that they'll come to things like that sooner, if not later. Did you check out the Amish in the City program or some of this other? Yeah, it was a problem for me because I was out interviewing at that time, mm-hmm. and I know the people that, that had done the program, and and uh, I cringed at it. Uh, the, the problem is that it feels very exploitative. Yeah, and it's also not an honest reflection of what the Lone Spring experience is in the community and, and uh, uh, that that's problematic in terms of everybody else understanding what goes on. I mean I mean, you know, not everybody in the world lives like Paris Hilton. I mean it's just not that way and we don't want that to be the emblem of what the United States is and how young people are very uh, act in the world. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, but it's certainly not the way the rest of us live. So if we want people to understand the Amish community and to be sensitive to that and to get out of it uh, what what they can in terms of how is it relevant to your own life, uh, a program like Amish in the City is, is very tough because it, it creates an impression that's not real. Yeah, yeah, it seems like that. And, and where can people pick up Rumspringer? Where can they get it? I found it well, just in my... Now, it's now out in paperback. Yep. And... and uh, uh, it's been the basis of uh, a number of uh, book club discussions and things like that. It's very good for for starting uh, discussions, among other things. I mean, it's a good introduction to life among the Amish. And after all, Rump Spring, as I said, is a, is a kind of a process that we all go through, whether formally or not. And it's sort of interesting to see it done in a, in a semi-formal way and, and in a way where, where, where the kids are 
exposed to things that they've never been exposed to before. We've all gone through this experience, but in a slightly different manner. Yeah, like I said, it was a fascinating book. I really enjoyed it a lot. And uh, chances are people can pick it up just about any bookstore, because I found mine at uh, and Yeah, Home. you can, and then Amazon on the uh, online stores as well. Yeah. I'm going to be out at the uh, the oldest bookstore in the country, the Moravian Bookstore, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, in May. You've talked about it. Book continues to sell well, and we're, we're delighted about that. Nice, nice. And what was the what was the reception like to the book uh, in the Amish community? Have you heard much from them about it? Well, I I wouldn't call it a deafening silence. It's just that I didn't expect them to, to comment much about it. Uh, I know um, from the, the people that have read it who have knowledge of the subject, and uh, from both inside and out, that it's an honest uh, depiction of things and, and and reflective of what the reality is. That's what I want. Yeah. And I guess uh, just talk a little bit about some of your other books, you know, plug away here on, on some of your other stuff. What's coming up, uh, we have a book called The Forty Years' War, uh, which will come out in November. And this is a book about the last 40 years of foreign affairs in, in the United States, and it ties what was going on in the Nixon era to uh, what's going on today and getting us into Iraq. The subtitle of the title is The Forty Years' War. The subtitle is uh, The Neocon Ascendancy from Nixon's Fall to the Invasion of Iraq. I don't want to tell you too much more about it. My co-author is uh, Len Kolodny, who is the primary author of the famous book Silent Coup. He's a kind of revisionist uh, Watergate history and long suppressed. Uh, still very much around and, and affecting uh, how people perceive that. Nice, nice. And that's coming out in November? We hope, yes. It's in, the, it's in the catalog for November, so we're hoping to get it out there. Awesome, yeah. awesome. Well, Tom, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Uh, your book is a serious, it's, it's got a lot of serious mainstream coverage, and, uh, and on a personal level, I appreciate you coming on our little rinky-dink radio program to talk about it. Uh, you know, when you get a, a review excerpt from people on the front cover, uh, you know you're, pretty, you're, in the, you're hitting the mainstream, so I appreciate that you'd come on our show to talk about the book. And uh, I can't put it over enough. Rum Springer, to be or not to be Amish, fascinating stuff. Not only personal profiles of some of these kids going through Rum Springer, but also looking at the Amish religion and Amish community from a I, number. I think there's one other thing that I would like to say. Sure. One of the best qualities about the book is the first-person account. Yeah. Uh, these, these are kids who are talking, and you you hear them saying it, and well, actually just read it, read them saying it in their own words, and then. Uh, rather than all in, in uh, my interpretation of it. Uh, and I think this is a very great strength because very often in, in things that are written about the Amish, uh, they're not quoted directly. All right, there you go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're getting the first-person perspective on these kids, what they're going through, what they're thinking of as they go through Rome Spring. It's really uh, an eye-opening book and a, a fascinating story. Uh, like I said, Tom, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I highly recommend the book to anybody listening on the program uh, like I said, I can't put it over enough. It was a fantastic read, and I uh, had a great conversation with you here today. Well, thanks very much for having me. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 3. Huge thanks to Tom Shackman for coming on the show to enlighten us to the world of the Amish. You can find out more on Tom Shackman and how to pick up the book Rumspringa, To Be or Not to Be Amish, at the website www.tomshackman.com, T-O-M. S-H-A-C-H-T-M-A-N dot com. Check it out. Moving right along, this would be the time for BOA Audio listener feedback, but we are so over the deadline this week that I want to wrap it up and get the episode out to you folks as fast as possible. The listener feedback is piling up. I'll try and get to some on the next edition of BOA Audio. If you want to shoot me your comments, questions, and feedback on the program, there's three ways to do it. Either write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. And the third way, of course, is to join the BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. All three of those methods are surefire ways to get your thoughts into the hands of myself and the outstanding BOA staff. Speaking of which, it's time now, of course, for the thanks portion of the show. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, and Rochelle Hawks, the infamous and esteemed BOA staff. I can't thank them enough 
for their help and support with the audio series and the website. As I've said time in and time out here on the program, if you're only listening to VOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at BenAllOfAmerica.com, you're only getting half the story. Go to BOA, check out the columns by the BOA staff, an ever-growing archive of esoteric opinion. Here now in the outro part of the show is where we ask you for donations. How do you donate to BOA? That's simple. You go to BenAllOfAmerica.com and click the golden PayPal button. You'll see it right when you get to the index page or the BOA Audio Archive page. Click that, go to PayPal, make a donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping BOA Audio and BenAllOfAmerica.com up and running and freely available. Next week and the week after, there will be no BOA Audio. It's time for our spring break. Usually in April, I'd like to take a couple weeks off, try and recharge my batteries here, enjoy the springtime a little bit, and line up the final batch of folks for the season. And that's pretty much what we have on our agenda. I've already got feelers out to some folks. I'm already kind of working on future episodes, looking at finishing up the season at about 30 episodes. So we really only got about nine slots left here on season three. And they're filling up fast, but we got to tape them, and I need a little time here to recharge my batteries We're looking at either April 26th or May 3rd for the return of BOA Audio Season 3, Episode number 22 of the season. We'll roll out on one of those two dates. Stay tuned to BOA for details as April unfolds. And on that note, we're going to close it out here for the week. Thank you so much for listening, folks. I want to apologize again for the technical difficulties and the somewhat lengthy delay on the program, but I'm happy to have it out, and I'm kind of happy to get on with my little spring break from the show. I've definitely been burning the candles at both ends for the last month or so. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.